paid good money to see this movie. When they go out to a theater, they want cold sodas, hot popcorn, and no monsters in the projection booth. Everyone pretend podcasting isn't boring. Turn it off. A storm is brewing, my friends. Someone has to stop it. Every Sunday for about a year now, we've been inviting a guest over for dinner and discussion. Zach, this is Mark. Oh, hey. Mark, this is Zach. We're a bunch of damn liberals. What are you, a Nazi? Or is that too far to the left? Hitler had the right idea. Excuse me? Let this pass. We can go on with the rest of our lives. This is terrible! What if you kill somebody whose death makes the world a better place? Blue bottle is bad. The green bottle is good. Everyone, this is Reverend Gerald Hutchins. Homosexuality is the terrible disease, and AIDS is the cure. When a woman cries rape, it's usually because she's already consented to sex. Really? Yeah, really. I've never met anyone who's anti-Earth. We're not even giving people a decent meal anymore. The fag basher had Chinese. <laughs> have you seen any of these men? Ready for my wine? Oh, yeah. Brother, have you lost your mind serving me this filthy swine? How about toast? I think we're in the clear, and would you take off those glasses and that homeboy hat? It's a secret. You fellas wouldn't know a guy get a decent meal around here, would you? Yes. File this under amazing stories, my friends. Welcome to the Projection Booth. I'm your host, Mike White. Joining me once again is Mr. Rob St. Mary. You left-wingers make me want to puke. Also joining us is Mr. Martin Kessler. I'm not anti-Earth. I'm pro-Earthling. We continue talking about comedic films this month with a look at Stacy Title's The Last Supper. Released in 1995, the film is a dark comedy wherein a handful of liberals decide to try and make the world a better place by poisoning scuzzball right-wingers and planting them in their garden. We will be spoiling this film as we go along, so if you haven't seen The Last Supper before, go ahead and track it down and come on back after you have watched it. We will still be here. So, Rob, when was the first time you saw this film, and what did you think, sir? I know that it didn't play locally. I don't believe it played in local theater, and if it did, it came and went so fast because it was a little indie film. Maybe it played at the Maine or something, or the Maple, around us here in Detroit. But I think it was my dad who had rented it on VHS. It must have been uh, my senior year of high school. It was 1996, so maybe I saw it around then, and I don't think I had rewatched it since. So, for me, it was interesting to go back and rewatch it. I have to say that there's aspects of it that still hold up in terms of, I had noted in my notes, I said, you know, it's, it's amazing that the film feels contemporary of political discourse and division that were so often sold in this country. I'm sure we'll be talking a little bit about politics in here because, you know, the movie is has nothing to do with politics. Rob, if my reviewers have one thing to say about that, there's no such thing as politics in movies. You've got to be crazy. What are you talking about? Yeah, I know. And exactly like the first time when I was on this show, oh, 12 years ago, 
when I talked about blood-sucking freaks and someone put a note that they said they didn't want to lecture on, oh, is it socialist feminist critique? And I was like, okay, whatever. And Martin, how about yourself? I didn't see it right away when it came out either. I think I saw it for the first time on the IFC channel on television when that was still a thing. I found it really captivating. And it's a film that I haven't watched super often in the years since, but it's one I kept thinking of and kept kind of coming back to because, like you said, there's definitely aspects that are still relevant. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a film that's very easy to think of when you're spending too much time on Twitter. This is actually a new one for me. I stayed away from this film. I think I was confusing it with the title being The Last Supper. I was not confusing it with The Da Vinci Code, but I was confusing it with another film. And I don't think it's Peter's Friends, though I think it has a very similar plot to Peter's Friends. But basically, there were a couple movies in the 90s where people were holding dinner parties and they were saying goodbye to their friends usually because they had AIDS. And I remember walking out of Peter's Friends. I just couldn't stand that movie. So I think I was confusing this with something like that, with that title. But I was delighted when I finally sat down and watched this movie, though there are some interesting politics, and we'll definitely talk about that as we go along. And it's so funny to think of this being a little indie film, and I'm doing air quotes. Just when you look at the cast of this, and you're just like, Cameron Diaz, Courtney B. Vance, Ron Perlman, Bill Paxton, Nora Dunn, Charles Durning, Mark Herman, Jason Alexander. It's like, wow, uh, to have this level of talent in one film was really very surprising. I got together over the weekend with Paul Zimmerman, who you've had on the show, and I was talking to Paul about that we were going to do this. And he said, oh, when, when he was editing Film Threat, he said they did a big like set visit and they they wrote about it. He goes, yeah, he goes, that's the movie that came out where Cameron Diaz had been in the mask, but she hadn't blown up yet. So it was kind of in between. So you look at it and go, oh, okay, not, you know, something about Mary or whatever, you know, that finally launched her huge. So, but yeah, the cast is just amazing. You're just like, wow. It's a pretty simple plot. I don't think we're going to go through this beat by beat because especially once we get to, there's a couple extended montage sequences, but really... It's basically a group of friends all getting together, having dinner, and the very first time this happens, one of the friends, Peter, he brings home a guest. Basically, he was having car trouble, and this guy picks him up, and that guy is Bill Paxton, who I had to laugh out loud when he talked about being a former Marine, because I was thinking about him, the Space Marines, taking out aliens, but... Always great to see Bill Paxton show up in anything, still sorely missed his presence and stuff. And especially him playing, I'm trying to remember what his, his character's name was in Weird Science, but he's really channeling Chet. a lot of that Chet energy. Yeah. <laughs> big Chet energy. Big, big Chet energy. And especially, I mean, he so reminds me of people that I've known in real life where he just starts talking about you know, Hitler really had some great ideas and, you know, you're just being very unfair to just label him as being so anti-Semitic. And, you know, he, he had some really good things going on and he, he eventually shows even more of his true colors by pulling a knife or is it a knife or a gun? It's a knife that he holds to Peter's throat and eventually Mark, and yes, there are a lot of biblical names in this movie, Mark 
played by Jonathan Penner, who we've had on the show before, and you'll hear a little bit later on, ends up stabbing him in the back. And that's really what sets them on their path of, hey, we're a whole bunch of bleeding heart liberals that talk of things to death. Maybe it's time we start doing something about things. We've tried nothing and we're all out of ideas. Well, it's all predicated on this scenario that they have of if you found yourself in 1909 sitting at a table from across from Adolf Hitler, would you kill him? And, you know, their answer is, of course, yes, you would. So let's basically kill these potential future Adolf Hitlers before they have a chance to become Hitler. Once the um, Bill Paxton character is stabbed, it's like, okay, well, what are we going to do? I mean, do we go to the cops? And what if we go to the cops? Then what are they going to, you know, you stabbed him. Like, do you really want to go to jail for this guy? Do you really, is there a better target? It's kind of like, if you're going to do, if you're going to do a prison sentence, you should at least have a better reason to go to jail. I guess it's really the philosophy that they're thinking through their head. Like, why throw yourself away on this guy? So at the same time, there's this parallel story of the, the sheriff that's played by Nora Dunn, who, you know, she's in, um, what is it that we did? Southland Tales, and which is the other film that I was thinking of that we did. We You haven't done anything else with her in it because... Oh, yeah. Think, Miami yeah. Blues. Oh, yeah, that's right. You know, she's always great. I always thought she was underappreciated, you know, in terms of the work that she could do. So... She's the sheriff and she's looking for this lost girl. So this becomes this kind of, I guess, the tension of being found out aspect for this group of people as they continue on their path of hosting these dinner parties for people they don't agree with. Yeah, and I'm very curious where they find these people. I mean, they do make a point a few times to say, like Charles Durning, like, oh, I interviewed him. He was the counterpoint to this argument about basically like compassionate care for AIDS patients. And he is just vehemently against gay people and against AIDS patients. And he's very much this homosexuality is the disease and AIDS is the cure type of person. And again, I love Charles Durning and he plays a son of a bitch like nobody's business, especially when he's there with papal collar on and just be so holier than now. So when he bites it, I'm pretty happy about that. But yeah, Jenny is the person that they're looking for, apparently played by Elizabeth Moss, or that's her in the photos. Do we ever see her in real life? Do we ever see Elizabeth Moss moving around in here? And are we supposed to think that Bill Paxson actually murdered her? That's what we're led to believe, is that maybe he was the killer, and that so maybe that's supposed to assuage our guilt a bit as to <laughs> our, our people killing off others. I think it's interesting that it's this loose end that's never quite tied up either. You sort of get the sense that maybe this is something that could have been resolved, but because of these characters' actions, it's left as this loose thread, which just kind of hangs by the end of the film. And um, I don't know, Nora Dunn's character, it reminds me a little bit of Farnsworth in Misery, where there's this long buildup of the tension waiting for them to stumble onto the crime, stumble into the, the main plot, and then it subverts that before the end by by killing them off. That kind of comes out of nowhere for me when she shows up and Courtney B. Vance is back in the garden, because like I said, they do plant all these corpses in the garden, and there's this whole thing where the tomato plants that are above the corpses just take off. 
And I really think we're supposed to see all of this tomato sauce as basically a stand in for blood and all this blood that's on their hands. And after a while, we see tomatoes everywhere in the house and all these jars of sauce everywhere in the house. It's like the blood is kind of closing in on them. And if anything, it feels like the blood is poisoning them because they get more and more vicious as this movie goes on and kind of stray away from their own politics. But I'd say of all the people that stray the most, it's Courtney B. Vance as Luke here, where he ends up pretty much just going off the deep end, especially when he takes a shovel to Nora Dunn's face. And it's like, oh, okay, so now we've gone from murdering right-wing nutjobs to just straight-up ganking a police officer. Isn't that where the, the title of the Coen Brothers movie, Blood Simple, comes from? That basically, like, you've gone kind of blood-mad, like you've killed enough that it's like you've lost your sanity kind of thing? And I think that's kind of what happens with these characters. And and, and they do have that conversation early on about sort of the, the the moral culpability. It's like, well, we're not, you know, if you kill one person, it's like kind of, where does it end? So it becomes this question of the sanctity of life, which, of course, is always the, the uh, right to life crusaders always use. And that also reminded me of George Carlin's whole thing about the sanctity of life in his stand-up bit from 1992, a few years before this movie. Sanctity of life. You believe in it? Personally, I think it's a bunch of shit. (laughs) Well, I mean, life is sacred? Who said so? God? Hey, if you read history, you realize that God is one of the leading causes of death. (laughs) Has been for thousands of years. Even if there were such a thing, I don't think it's something you can blame on God. Now, you know where the sanctity of life came from? We made it up. You know why? Because we're alive. It's pretty funny how it progresses, and it feels like at a certain point they're going after smaller and smaller fish instead of bigger and bigger fish. It does get into this question of, ah, like, is this person really evil, or are they just stupid? Are they just uh, illiterate? Are they just a stupid teenager? You know, it gets into that gray area of, you know, are we really killing somebody who's evil, or are we just trying to satisfy our own stance? They have this montage. So Mark Harmon basically is very much male chauvinist pig, very, not necessarily women should only be in the kitchen type of thing, but pretty darn close to it. You get the right to life crusader. So that is that whole thing of, you know, I will murder to protect the sanctity of life as you're talking about. You've got Jason Alexander coming in as this anti-environmentalists eating cheeseburger and smoking and drinking, I think, all at the same time. Kind of a George Costanza thing. It reminded me of him when he's having sex with Susan and eating the uh, pastrami and stuff. You've got all of these folks, and then you show up with, like, the black Muslim guy, and I'm just like, okay, I'm not really sure what the problem is with this black nationalist guy. And he's not even a black nationalist. He's not, like, he, he doesn't express his politics at all for me and he's just coded as this kind of farrakhan guy and like farrakhan was a piece of shit but i'm not seeing the piece of shit in this black muslim i'm just like okay yeah he's got the bow tie all right know what you're trying to go for but i'm not seeing it and then you get the one guy who apparently likes to go out and beat homeless people and he actually starts to have second thoughts and it's just like oh like the light bulb goes off over their his head And they end up murdering him anyway. And I'm like, oh, okay. So yeah, like you said, they're going after petty crimes or petty things 
And then when they actually talk to one of these people and they start to have second thoughts, they don't care. They're just going to murder that person anyway. I mean, it's definitely understandable how somebody might find it more satisfying to obliterate somebody than to change their mind. It's funny also to me, too, how it's reflected in the quality of the meals that they're serving up as the last supper to these people. It starts off as, oh, we're going to give them a nice last meal. We're going to be very civil about this. And then gradually as it goes on, like you said, you know, there's the hamburger. At a certain point, it's just like white bread and macaroni and cheese. Like they're not putting any effort into these meals anymore. I almost wish there wasn't a line to draw attention to it because it just plays very funny as like a small background detail if you if you notice these meals getting worse and worse. Another thing that I liked, and I know this is just by virtue of you have enough people in the way the table is set, but there's at least one shot, especially later into the montage, that reminds me of the exact same setup as in Texas Chainsaw Massacre, where the, the family's like looking down the barrel of the camera at, you know, their dinner guest. And it looks exactly the same staging in here as in Texas Chainsaw and probably just as menacing because they're all kind of like laughing and sneering and all of this. This is great. It's it's almost the exact same visual nod. I was getting a lot of shallow grave while I was watching it this time. And just that montage of the three kind of pieces of shit main characters. Shallow Grave is a great movie in that I really care about these people who are just absolute wankers. These folks, I don't know if I necessarily care about them as much, but to see that same shot where they're interviewing all the potential housemates and felt very much like when they're on that other side of the table looking at their victim. But yeah, I can totally see that Texas Chainsaw Massacre thing. I love Shallow Grave as well. I'm glad we got to do that on the show because it's, you know, one of the underappreciated of the uh, Danny Boyle films, early one. It also ruins me a little bit of these Frederick Knott type one location murder plays like Dial In For Murder or Wait Until Dark. It has a little bit of that feel to it, which I, I like a lot. There's like a little bit of Hitchcock in this, I think, the playfulness and the dark humor. A little bit of that. I was seeing a lot of arsenic and old lace as well, especially the choice of poisoning as their way to dispatch people. And I do have to say when things really come to a head, it's really their own fault because they invite this underage girl to come over who's one of these like promise ring, no sex before marriage type girls. And I'm just like, she's not going to drink poison wine. You guys really need to come up with an alternative. You know, there's, there's your milk, your tea, you know, something else, because this girl is definitely not going to have any wine at dinner. Try the wine. Aren't you drinking? I never drink. Why? I remember joking many years ago, because this takes place, I mean, we're led to believe that it takes place, I guess, in Iowa, based on the um, license plates. And they're checking the newspaper to see, oh, is anyone missing in the newspapers and things like that. And I remember joking many years ago about the show Murder, She Wrote, right, which takes place in a small town. I'm like, that place has the highest murder rate per capita of any place in the world. I'm like, that makes Ciudad Juarez look like Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. You know, it's just like, what the hell's going on? Like, at some point, all of these people that are disappearing, you think that there would be a bigger outcry. You think that there would be, like, a bunch of these flyers all over the place. Like, where's the priest? And where's this person? Where's that? 
you know, which would have added, I think, a little bit more tension. But obviously, you know, we're playing in a heightened reality in which these, you know, it's not supposed to be real. But there was just part of me just had to laugh. Like, if, if you look at it from a rational standpoint, it's like there's really no way you could get away with killing, I think, at least seven to eight people, maybe eight within a summer. And <laughs> in a small town in Iowa, and people not know what, you know, notice something funny. Well, according to the one guy's cast, it's 10 people, though they argue about that. Like you said, there's a lot of things that if you look at this film as if it takes place in the rational world, it wouldn't really hold up or make sense. But like you said, it has that heightened reality. I always think of this movie as a little bit like a parable, you know, with the paintings and something about all the fruit imagery and the way the story unfolds, by the time you get to the end, it feels like the punchline to this um, sort of dark political parable, maybe. Yeah, let's talk about the painting. So the Jonathan Penner character, Mark, is a painter. The whole movie starts off with a series of paintings, and it ends with the painting. We get to see him painting through this, and it's kind of a... I'm trying to remember what the, the name of the actual painting is, but it's basically where God is reaching out to Adam and giving him the spark of life uh, that's on the, the... The origin of man, yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Right. Yeah. He can't sleep. He's kind of possessed. He ends up painting this, and we saw his paintings earlier in the movie. They're interesting paintings. They're, they're kind of outsider artish type of stuff. But yeah, I, I like them, and I like that he's this painter. It's the only... He's the only character who really stands out for me as far as just being a little bit different from the rest of them because everybody else other than perhaps Courtney B. Vance, they'll feel like they're very much cut from the same cloth. I wouldn't be able to tell you the difference between Cameron Diaz as Jude versus Annabeth Gish as Polly. They're the women characters. You know, there's not a whole lot unique about them, but then you get Mark and he's at least got the paintings, you know, even when it comes to Pete, it's like, okay, he's got a cast on his arm. He doesn't really have a lot of personality. I mean, this is very much, like you said, Martin, this is very much a parable. It's basically, all right, these people get together and they murder these people. And are they in the right? Are they in the wrong? And it's interesting because this whole movie, you know, it begs the question, are they right? Are they wrong? And I would like to think, and this is going to sound very sick and twisted, I would like to think they're in the right, but they're definitely painted as being in the wrong and it's like okay well do you feel for these characters or do you not feel for these characters and at the end of the movie i mean they are not victorious it's the biggest of all of the pieces of shit ron perlman as norman abernoff he is basically a stand-in for at the time rush limbaugh i could see him being more of a tucker carlson these days where he sells this whole line of shit to his audiences, but really doesn't believe it himself and just is doing it for the ratings. And he's the one who figures out everything and ends up poisoning all of them. So it's like, okay, well, they haven't vanquished evil. If anything, evil just vanquished them. I think the irony is that after this debate about, you know, is it right or wrong what they're doing, well, they are in fact sitting across the table from the next Adolf Hitler, that's when they fail. Courtney B. Vance is the only one who is maybe correct in that situation, and he's outvoted because, like you said, he's the one who's most over the edge and is perhaps killing for not the reasons that he um, supposes he is. But I think, like, it's interesting that they've been picking on these or killing these people who are 
easy to argue against. You know, their opinions are stupid. And by the end, when they run into Rob Perlman's character, he's smarter than they are. He's persuasive. He knows exactly how to drive a wedge in between the lines of division in them. And, you know, he's completely capable of destroying them. You know, it's it's like, oh, no, never mind killing Hitler from the other end of the dinner table. Hitler's going to kill me. <laughs> but, you know, he's so expert at talking in circles around them and sowing doubt within them. I I think Rob Perlman's really fantastic in this also. It's one of my favorite performances of his. And, uh, you know, I like his work in Jean-Jacques Hattel's films and Jean-Pierre Jaune's movies. But, I mean, you said Rush Limbaugh, and I, I've heard like Pat Buchanan kind of compared to this character, but he does something a little bit different than them. His voice, he's got like, you know, a little bit of a silky voice thing that I don't really associate with either of those guys. How does he say it? Like, I would reason with him. You know, the way he says it, it's so devilish. And when he grins, it's that mouthful of teeth that's wonderful. I, I really like his performance here, where you feel like he is the the big dog in this film in a way. He's, he's the one who can really flip the script and obliterate these characters who've been killing all these people. <laughs> you know, at the very beginning, they, they set up this character where, you know, they're watching him on television and saying, oh, he's... He's so stupid. He's an idiot. And um, I think a character, maybe it's Mark, says, like, oh, no, he's a genius. I think Courtney B. Vance's character says he's the devil. And I, I think both of those things turn out to be true in the end. He's, he's the devil. He is, he is the next Adolf Hitler, I think, as that final painting and the political speech that overlays it suggests. I've heard some people kind of argue different interpretations of the ending. I know it's it's a little ambiguous, and I've heard some people say, well, how can the painting exist if Mark died so he couldn't paint it? But but again, it, it's a parable. I, I think the paintings are telling the story in a way. I think one of the lessons is it's not really the believers that are the issue. It's those who understand how to manipulate the believers. It's those who, they're the real problem. But the thing is, is that when you're so in the ideology, you don't see that. You focus more on the people who are the believers as opposed to the people who are able to to manipulate, to get the people to believe. And this is where I saw kind of talking about contemporary for 2023 to the connection to, as Mike said, oh, maybe he's a Tucker Carlson with the whole Fox News Dominion lawsuit thing, which is to me a perfect illustration where all the texts and emails come out and they're like, oh, God, Trump, I can't stand him. I hate this guy. It's fucking terrible. Like, I can't wait for him to go away. And they're saying that behind the scenes, but on camera, they're constantly like, oh, he's our guy and, and all of this. So feeding the audience what they want or what that person feels they need in order to raise their own stature and to make the money. But at the same time, they really don't believe in anything. So it's it becomes a question of how do you battle an, an amoral figure, really, because really that's what Ron Perlman's character is. I mean... I think if he could see the value of control within being a liberal, I think he would have been a liberal or he would have been a conservative. It just depends on where he could have seen the ability to manipulate and control and to build his power base and the money and the stature and all the other things he wants. So the point that they're trying to make thematically is that you can't, you can't battle someone who's immoral in that way because there's really no way to kind of defend against them in, in this kind of way. I guess you would say this uh, hardcore way of just, you know, we'll just kill him. I remember my father warning me about 
white supremacists and these types of people. And his advice to me was that like most of these people are just stupid, playing dress up, wearing jackboots and getting swastika tattoos. But if you run into somebody who's, who knows better and still embraces this ideology anyway, somebody who's, who's too smart for it, he said that those are really dangerous people to stay away from them. I don't know if you've seen the, the Daniel Radcliffe movie Imperium, where he's the FBI agent going undercover. There's like the, the one character in it who's, he's a white supremacist who still listens to Leonard Bernstein. And I'm like, that's the guy, that's the guy who's going to do the bombing. <laughs> it's like in the back of my head. So I think a little bit of that also, these people who are, who are smarter than their own politics and who use it to their advantage to gain power, to destroy opposition. You know, I, I think it's, it's something I definitely try to be aware of. A good friend of mine actually was a drummer in band I was in in high school and we're still friends now, but there was a period in our early twenties where he showed up at my house with a skinhead jacket and tattoos and all of this. And I was like, what the fuck dude? And I'm like, I go, you're Polish, man. I'm like, do you have any idea what the fucking Nazis did to the Polish people? I mean, come on, you know? And I kind of pushed his ass out the door. And a few years later, he came back to me and um, we met up for dinner recently. And he goes, you know what? I, I want to thank you for doing that. I met these people at a time in my life when I was very isolated. I was very alone. I was very upset with the world. I didn't, I was looking for answers. I wasn't finding the answers that I wanted. And it, it was just comfort. It was, it was friendship is what I found really. And, and eventually what happened was they kind of turned on me too. Like I thought it was one thing and it became something else. And I had to take a hard look at myself and go, no, I, I this is, yeah, this is wrong. You know, it took him a couple of years to kind of snap out of it. But when he kind of came back to reality, he was like, you know, it just didn't, it just didn't make any sense because they were telling me that, you know, he goes, part of it was he was a musician and he was just like, you know, all the music I love was created by black people. <laughs> so he's like, how am I supposed to hate black people? He goes, I love jazz and I love blues. And, you know, it's like, what the fuck? But really, like I said, for him, it was that it was, was finding community. And I think to this film, some of these sort of lesser people, as we're talking about, not the Ron Perlman character, that maybe it's much the same for them. Like, obviously, we don't get into their backstories and things like that. But it could be, you know, I found community. I found community in a church. I found community in this. I found community in that. This just happens to be what I've been told and I've come to believe as what I should be following. But it's really more about, about that kind of thing. So... When you see people who you're just like, no, this guy's Harvard educated. This guy went to Yale. That is, you know, like, like you look at people in the GOP and you're like, Ron DeSantis went to Harvard and Yale, you know, Ted Cruz went to Harvard and Yale. I'm like, these guys are educated people. And so there's part of me that goes, they know what they're doing. They know that they don't really believe this stuff. They've just found a way to get people to back them and give them money and positions of authority. And that's really what it's about more than anything. That's disturbing. That's very disturbing. I think about a movie like Black Klansmen where, I mean, yes, the white supremacists are very dangerous. There's the bomb that's being set off, but they're portrayed as being just buffoonish, even all the way up to David Duke. And I'm just like, I don't think that these people are as stupid as you're portraying them, they're all comic relief. 
And Spike Lee wants his cake and to eat it too. He wants to make fun of the white supremacists and also show that they're evil, but stupid at the same time. And it's just like, they're not always mutually exclusive. You know? Illinois Nazis. Yeah. Yeah. Speaking of skinheads though, there's a skinhead that's credited in the credits, Patrick Lawrence. I don't remember a scene with the skinhead in this movie. There was another character I noticed when I was going through the IMDb, like illegal alien haters, something like that, that noticed in the film. So I assume maybe there were more vignettes that just didn't make it into the final cut. At a certain point, it plays a little bit like a montage, or it's it's going through these different characters who get killed quite quickly. I don't think you see all 10 or 11, so presumably there, there's some on the cutting room floor. I guess that would make sense, especially it would be kind of more biblical, too, if they had 12 people that they ended up killing, and then the 13th is the one that they can't kill. I didn't really think about the whole painting can't be done if Mark is dead. That's a really good point, Martin. I, I think I read this on an IMD message board like 15 years ago. I, it's not my point, but I, I've seen that some people have that. So I actually wrote that down in my notes when I rewatched it. So it's funny. Yeah. And the other thing that I wanted to say real quick was that having Courtney B. Vance be the guy who starts to kill a little bit more for fun and is the one that kills the sheriff and is just really adamant about killing people kind of a bad look since he's one of only two black characters in this entire movie and it's like maybe you could make one of the milk toast white guys be a little bit more murderous i mean give give poor ron elder something to do you know that might be the answer to your question about the the black muslim that the idea was they had to balance that off a little bit oh you know he's not the only black character Ron Eldard is an interesting guy because I've seen him in so many movies, but I didn't realize that I was looking at him in so many movies. When he showed up, I was just like, I know this guy. I don't know where I know him from. And then I realized that I watched every single episode of Blind Justice back in 2005. One of many blind detective shows. Actually, there's a there's also a deaf detective from Canada, a woman, and I've watched all of her shows too. So I don't know. Yay for the differently abled, I suppose, but apparently like differently abled detectives. To me, there is several different readings that you can have on this ending. One is, is that they're all dead. And that basically the idea that Martin said is that we'll just kind of divide and conquer, you know, that you can't all come together to figure out what it is that you want. And that's why the left will always be as Bill Paxton says up the front. It's like, oh, you liberals, all you do is talk, you know, don't do anything. Which also reminds me of the line of Dark Helmet and Spaceballs. Now you see that evil will always triumph because good is dumb. I also saw it as the idea of, well, why the tomatoes? Like you were saying, there's this great visual with the idea of, okay, it's a stand-in for blood, but the idea also of reaping what you sow, right? So if they're sowing this death and they're sowing all this, then of course it's going to eventually come back onto them. Those were the big ones that I kind of took away. And then sort of the third was that maybe Norman let them live. Maybe he didn't figure it out. Like we're led to believe that he figured it out based on the editing and the way things are put together. But at the same time, in order for someone like him to be a demagogue, he needs someone to fight against. He needs people who have, who hate his guts. He needs people who who hold differing opinions. So therefore, yeah, well, of course, you know, if, 
if there was a group of liberals that got together and killed a bunch of right-wingers, wouldn't that be great fodder for your campaign? See, we can't trust these liberals. They're all trying to kill us. Capitalists, if you think that you can play footsies with these people, you're wrong. They will come for you and drag you into the streets and kill you. I always imagine, even though it's not explicitly stated, that surviving his encounter with them is what propels his political career at the very end, that, you know, the fame of that is what would lead him to become president of the United States somehow. Well, it is nice that they've got that Shonen Knife cover of Top of the World playing. Basically, like, yeah, he is going to be at the top of the world. He is that new Hitler, as you're talking about. So, yeah, I think that's a really good reading of it, is that this is what helps him out in his career. No matter what, he's going to be able to spin it, whether all five of them die or whether they don't and he just continues on. Regardless, he always seems to have the upper hand. All right, we're going to take a break and play a pair of interviews. First up, we'll hear from Mark himself, Jonathan Penner. And after that, you'll hear from screenwriter Dan Rosen. And we'll be back with both of those right after these brief messages. Hello, everyone. This is Malcolm McDowell. I just want to say that uh, this is a request to listeners of the Projection Booth podcast to become patrons of the show via patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Projection Booth. That's pretty simple. I think you can do that. It's a great show, and Mike, he provides hours of great entertainment. So now it's time to give back, my little droogies. Settle down and take a listen and have a sip of the old Malocco. And then you'll be ready for a little of the old in-out, in-out, real hard show. Bye-bye. Jonathan Penner, it's great having you back on the show. We are talking about The Last Supper can you tell me where were you at in your career around this time? My wife, Stacy Title, and I were just kind of getting started. I had done my first TV series as an actor, a show called Grapevine, which was created by David Frankel, who went on to win his own Oscar and have a big career in the movies and on TV. We were so poor. How poor were you? We were so poor that the tax refund that I got from doing Grapevine was enough to pay for a short film that we made. We made a short film called Down on the Waterfront that was nominated for an Academy Award. That's a whole other story. Because we'd been nominated and we're feeling pretty great, we were at a backyard barbecue, honestly, and just talking, you know, like, what is, what's going on? And somebody introduced, like, he just got nominated for an Oscar. And I'm like, yeah, it's incredible, you know. And he said, really? We're looking for filmmakers to make this new movie that we have a script and we're not sure who's going to direct it. They sent it over to Stacy and to me because I was producing. They had seen the short at that point. They got to see the short and they were like, you know, would you guys like to do this? Jonathan, you should be in the movie and Stacy, you should direct the movie. And because we had written the short, they wanted they asked us to sit down and work with Dan Rosen, who had written the script to just tweak it a little bit and turn it into, you know, the movie that you see today. So we worked with him and got hired. I don't know how many other people they met. I'm sure they met more than just us, but but that's where we were in our career was that launched our our feature career. So that was in the early 90s. 
What was the state of the script when you guys started working with Dan? Well, it was great. You know, there was there was an extra housemate. If you've seen the film, there are five of us living in the house. And at that point, there were six. And it just sort of felt like there was one character too many. We just wanted to strengthen all five characters by taking the best lines of this sixth character and saying, like, this is the aggressive one, and this is the nerdy one, and this is the sexy one, and this is the whatever, and just made five great characters instead of six good characters, and just kind of punched everything up a little bit, you know. But honestly, the script, you know, that's why he gets sole screen credit, was because it really is his script that we just helped as a good set of producers and a director would do anyway, I think. You know, so then we started to have to cast it, and... This is a real, you know, Hollywood story. Stacy and I had a, a manager who's now a big agent, a guy named Brian Swartstrom was our manager at the time. And he's like, well, I've got Annabeth Gish and I've got Ron Eldard. And we're like, they're incredible. That's two of the, you know, two of them. And uh, he had Bill Paxton and we worked with Bill. That was a whole, Bill was really on the rise at that point. He, he was shooting um, Apollo 13 and he really tested Stacy to see if she was up for the task. And she, of course, passed with flying color. So he signed on. And that really helped. You know, I mean, suddenly you got a really pretty serious cast. The last one was a Cameron Diaz. And so, you know, we had a manager and we also had a, an attorney. And our attorney said, you know, I've got this beautiful, super talented young client who just dropped out of a movie called... The Phantom is a movie that was that got made with Billy Zane. Aberyn was going to be the female lead or one of the female leads, and she dropped out of it for whatever reason. She was looking for a job, you know. And would we go and see her in the mask, which was the only job that she'd had? And we were like, "Well, who is she?" You know, we never heard of her. Not that we were any, you know, you know, like who is this person? And she had been like a copper tone model, and she was quite a bit younger. I mean, she was younger at that point it seemed like a big age difference you know she was 23 and i was 30 or something or 29 stacy and i went out that day and saw the mask in the movies and of course what she was asked to do in the mask was look gorgeous and be vivacious and you know but she's like a star i mean she's wonderful in the movie and we said i don't know we'll take a shot so we thought that she would play the kind of the sexier character and she said, no, I want to play the more serious character. And so they, she and Annabeth Gish kind of flipped the characters that we would have expected them to play. And she was fantastic. You know, we had a ball working with her. At that time, she was like, yeah, I'm going to do this for a couple of years. She was engaged, I think, to be married. Or she was very seriously involved with somebody, you know, I'm going to get married. I want to have kids. And and we're like, really? You should ride this thing because you're going to be, you know, you're great. And, and of course, now she has kids and she's married, but it took a long time. She had an extraordinary, has an extraordinary career. The other piece of the puzzle, Courtney B. Vance, he is just amazing in this role. We didn't audition him. We, you know, we had um, Deb and Bonnie Zane. Again, you know, I went to college with Deb Zane. So, you know, and this is certainly how every kind of creative project comes together. It's like, who do you know? Who do you want to work with? Who do you love? It makes it much easier to work with folks that you that you know and love. I certainly knew of Courtney, 
I didn't, I, you know, I'd never worked with him. None of us had, but Deb was like, Courtney Vance. And we're like, yeah, can you get him? That'd be amazing. And it was like that, you know, he read the script, loved it. And so it was, it was really pretty easy. You know, once a train, and this is something that, you know, we were spoiled on our, we were spoiled on our first short, you know, went to the Oscars. Oh yeah. Well, that's how it goes. You know, go to a dinner party and wind up with a, with a movie, you know, and with financing, it was financed by the, the brother of one of the producers who was like a dentist, you know, and he said, yeah, you know, this was, this was when video stores really were and HBO and Showtime and things like that were desperate for, uh, for material. You know, if you could make a viable independent movie, and this was in the days of, I guess we were at Sundance, like the year of Spank the Monkey and a couple of other pictures like that. You know, this was like the heyday of independent cinema in America. Quarter of a million dollars, you know, if you can put it in the right place and put together a decent movie. And this movie, you know, ran for a year, literally, in a Paris movie theater. You know, a lot of people made a lot of money on this on this particular movie. It was the right right movie at the right time. It wasn't particularly successful in the movie theater on its initial, you know, run, which we, you know, hoped it would be, but it's forever and we're still talking about it 30 years later which is amazing but you were asking me about courtney vance and he was no-brainer he said yes and so that made the five of us we, we put that together very very easily how did all the the cameos come about or or the uh the the victims stacy's cousin is married to jason and jason and i met on a movie called white palace which had predated this he had a great-sized part, and I had a small part, but we became good friends because we were shooting in St. Louis, and, like, you know, we didn't know anybody in St. Louis. We were in the hotel together, and we just started hanging out. He and his wife introduced me to Stacy, and we fell in love very immediately, you know, and were inseparable almost immediately. So he was in the short film that we made, he and I, and Ed Asner, and a guy named Mike Starr, and a guy named Pete Adkins were the, were the actors in that. And then when we got the opportunity to do the feature, we, of course, asked him, you know, if he'd, if he'd do a part, and he was hilarious. Some of the other parts, let's see, Rachel Chagall, who she does a, she's, she has a, she uses her finger. I don't even remember what the hell she was talking about. She was, um, she was in White Palace with us. She was actually his wife in White Palace. There's a woman named Pamela Dean who was hilarious. She's like the librarian who's talking about dirty books. And she's, you know, she was in an acting class with Jason and I, wonderful actor, Mark Harmon. And, you know, here's a funny thing. Like Mark Harmon, we were like, really? Mark Harmon, the guy from summer school? You know, we didn't, you know, here we were like snobby, young gun actors and stuff. And, and Deb Zane was like, are you fucking kidding me? If I can get you Mark Harmon to play this part, are you nuts? Shut the fuck up and do it, you know? And we're like, okay, okay. Mark Harmon, he was fabulous, right? And of course, he went on to be, you know, Mr. NCIS and, and you know, is a huge, huge star and was just a joy to work with. He was so funny and, and humble and wonderful. Bill Paxton, of course, was great. Who plays the Louis Farrakhan character? He was a comic that we had worked with, uh, done some improv with. The writer, Dan Rosen was doing an improv show called The Dysfunctional Show. And he played a Rush Limbaugh-like character named Whitey Fjord. 
And all of us wound up doing little cameos in this tiny theater in Hollywood and, and, and did a lot of improv together at that time. We found him through there. He was hilarious. Charles Durning, who kind of fell asleep at the table and couldn't remember his lines. But, you know, the movie was so low budget and shot so fast that basically we just put them all in the chair, like one at a time, and, you know, set the camera like this. I guess Charles Durning, we probably moved the camera once or twice. Bill Paxton, we certainly did. But most of those other ones were just working in front of a locked-off camera. We shot them in one day, or probably one afternoon, and they just killed. I mean, you know, they just cracked us up, and it was it was great. There's at least one person that's in the credits on IMDb, and I think there are the credits of the movie, that I don't think is in the film. Frederick Lawrence is a skinhead character? Yeah, yeah. We shot him. He was great. We just sort of... Stuff gets cut out, and I think that because he was so funny and we liked him so much, we kept him in the credit so that he would get his residuals. Like That's like how my wife, who was literally an angel, would be like, oh no, he was hilarious. If we cut him out, he still gets paid. Put him in the credits and he'll get his, he'll get his residuals, you know. Is it true Elizabeth Moss was the girl in the photo on the missing flyer? I've been told that. I'm not going to say it's not true. I don't know. I was not there when they shot it, but I mean, it probably is true. And let's let it be true. Yeah, that's Elizabeth Moss and her first appearance. I don't know. I don't know. But I've been told that. What are some of your favorite memories of working on the film? You know, we, was, we were young and ambitious and hungry, and we tried all sorts of things. There's a lot of footage that never made it into the picture. We were trying to find the exact tone one night. You know, Stacy had shown everybody... His Girl Friday, right, which is the classic screwball comedy. It's Rosalind Russell and, and Cary Grant, and they talk a mile a minute. Everybody is funny as hell, and, and just like the cues are picked up like this. And she wanted, she wanted it played like that. And some, some of the folks, I remember, you know, we all sat and we sort of bonded and we watched the TV and we got the videotape and shh saw that movie. And Cameron, for one, I remember very clearly, she'd never seen a movie like this. You know, she was not even aware that these that, that a movie like this existed, let alone that there was people like Stacy and I who were, you know, movie fanatics who would be like, oh, you got to watch this and you got to watch this and it's like this. And, and so she was quite moved. She was like, oh my God, there's like a world of movies that I, I don't know about yet. So that was really fun sort of bonding over that and realizing the movie could be played in this, you know, these were college students and very witty, almost to their own detriment, they were witty. Oh, Ron Perlman was the other one that we cast. Stacy used to work out at Hollywood Y, right? You know, she was she didn't she wasn't she didn't care like for a fancy gym. She went to the Y. And Ron Perlman also went to the Y. And the two of them would hang out and bullshit each other, you know. And he saw her reading a script on the treadmill and said, Hey, Stacy, what do you read? You know? And they would always do that with each other. And she said, it's a movie. And actually you'd be really, really perfect for this. So he read it and loved it. And he was at a point in his career where he, he was saying to us, I just work with this crazy young kid down in Mexico and he's really talented. 
you know, and I really just want to work with people like him and you young people who are ambitious and I don't want to do the old Hollywood bullshit. The stuff that people are offering me in Hollywood is, you know, the ugly guy, you know. And so, of course, that was Guillermo del Toro, and he had just done Kronos and was, you know, he came back and said, yeah, he's fantastic, this kid. You know? And, of course, they've had a really, really long, long and positive collaboration. And del Toro seems to be doing pretty good. If he keeps it up, maybe he'll get it right eventually. So we fought for Ron Perlman, right? The producers who now saw this cast coming together said, yeah, Ron Perlman, we can do better than that. And Stacy and I are like, we had the reaction that Deb Zane had to us about, about Mark Harmon NCIS, you know. They're like, we can do better. And we're like, better than Ron Perlman? What does that mean? Who is that? And they're like, that may be Bill Murray. And I'm like, you're going to get Bill Murray for this movie? You got Ron Perlman and you're going to try to get Bill Murray? Okay, you want to, I'll give you 10 minutes to try to get Bill Murray and then you better lock up Ron Perlman. Honestly, we drove over to their office. Stacy and I jumped in the car. We were like on the phone and we didn't have Zoom then. We said, we're coming over there, you know, and we hung up the phone and literally drove across town and just got in their faces like, are you nuts? He's perfect. Cast him, cast him, cast him. And we just made them cast Ron Perlman. And of course he was, He's fantastic in the part and is fantastic. Bill Murray's pretty good too, but we weren't going to get Bill Murray. No way. So that was fun. I remember that now driving across town and Stacy and I are just going, they got to do it. They got to do it. We got to get him, you know? So they responded to that and people, you know, respond to passion and enthusiasm. They really do. They want to be a part of that. You know, it's something that I kind of say to, to people is, is, you know, if you build it, it will come. If you give them something to do, people want to work. And if they see like, yeah, you're going to do it whether they help you or not, then they want to help you. You know, if, if you're not coming to them for help, it's very easy for them to say, let me help you. We were able to put it together really pretty quickly. Things came together. Alec Hammond, who is our designer, that was his first movie that he was the straight-up designer. Renfield is his movie. So he's been doing fantastic for years. Mark Mothersbaugh, I think we were his first feature. He'd been working kind of for Nickelodeon, and he had this little band, Devo, but he was trying to get into features, and he had done our short. Again, a friend of a friend. And he said, sure, I'll do it. So we were able to pull together some really, really wonderful, talented, talented people. Nora Dunn came on board. I think she might have been a friend of Dan Rosen through the comedy world. I'm not sure how we how we got her, but she was great. The movie was an 18-day shoot. You know, the last night, uh, one of the interns uh, who was smoking way too much weed accidentally knocked over a work light in the attic and set fire to the house. That was exciting. So we were all evacuated, and the, there's one shot that we got literally one take, and that's what's in the movie. Because as we're as we're acting, we're sort of aware that like you know behind the camera, people are starting to like run back and forth. And Stacy was just like, "Keep going, you know, keep going." So we just talk, 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 cut. Everybody, get out of the house. Get out of that. The house was on fire. The worst thing that could have happened, you know, instead of having a big party that night. There was the fire trucks, you know, and the house was drenched in water. But then we were able to make an insurance claim and get two days of reshoots using the insurance money. 
So, you know, it turned out to be a good thing. So it really taught us that, you know, what seems to be a bad thing might actually be a good thing because we got a bunch of extra shit that we could shoot. Now, I was saying that, you know, the tone of the picture was not quite clear. And, and we found it as, as, as we cut, but we did try some slapstick stuff. We tried some really out there, you know, comedy that was too out there. It didn't, it didn't fit tonally. And so that all got cut out of the picture. So the picture is right now much more contained in, in what you see, honestly. The music helped immeasurably. When Sony came on board, we had all this temp music. Again, we had no idea what we were doing, you know. So when you make a movie, when you do anything, I guess you put the soundtrack that you want, and then and then you realize, like, well, we can't ever use any of this music because it's all really expensive music, but you get the idea of what should be here and there. And Sony picked up the movie and said, you know what? The music's great. We'll just pay for all the music. So that basically doubled the budget. It was, you know, quarter of a million dollars in making the movie and then another couple of hundred thousand dollars to get all that fantastic music. And then they put out a pretty successful soundtrack using many of those songs and some of the Mark Mothersbaugh original music. The might of Sony. Once Sony got their hands on the picture and they, you know, it had a theatrical release, as I say, it was not as successful a theatrical release as we all had hoped it would be. Then we can talk about why that might have been, but but, you know, once they got their hands on the picture and were going to turn it into a Sony movie, that extra $200,000, which was, you know, an enormous amount of money for us, was like, oh, yeah, sure, we'll, we'll spend that. That's That makes sense to us. You know, we're like, right, perfect. You play a, a painter in the film, and I know these aren't your paintings, they're somebody else's, but what was that like for you? And, and what do you take as far as the symbolism of these paintings that's going on? The symbolism was that I was a creative character who, you know, wound up creating something way beyond his his control. And he was sort of an intellectual character, as I say, a creative character who put something into the world that was toxic and disgusting. The symbolism of the paintings themselves, we were in the hands of the painters who who made the work for us. We were able to talk a little bit, and we talked to a couple of different painters who presented, you know, we, we couldn't afford to buy too much original artwork. We'll talk about that in a sec, but, but um, so there were two different painters, I believe, who showed us their work, you know, would this work for you guys? I guess we'd give them some nominal amount of money to use their paintings, and then there were one or two pictures that I ostensibly was painting. In the, in, the, in the movie. I think if you see the way it's cut, though I'm painting, I'm not sure I'm ever actually painting in front of the camera. You know, the one painting that was commissioned, Bill Paxton, who was a big art collector, actually, an aficionado, and you'll forgive me, I don't remember the painter's name. Um, he collected these paintings of this guy and he said, let's use his work. So all of the paintings on the opening credits are his, and there was one painting that he created for the movie, and that's the that's the end painting, you know, with the bodies and and, and all of that. So that I guess we paid him a thousand dollars or something to make a painting for us. I wish I was smarter about symbolism. Don't know how to answer it. Is your character prescient, or do you survive the evening with 
Ron Perlman because the last painting is him alive and it looks like the rest of you dead. Right. What a great question. I think that I'm dead. And I guess now that we're talking about it, God must have made the Ron Perlman painted the painting. I, I don't know. It's a fake. It's like this fake set of Basquiat's that somebody, you know, made up because the story was going to be the story was going to be a hugely successful story. This is just a facile answer. The answer is it was stupid of us. We didn't ever think of it. I haven't thought of it until this second that, of course, if I was dead, how the hell could I paint that painting? So I'll say I was prescient. I knew I had some idea that this was what was going to happen. And I painted a painting of my own demise. That's the answer. Terrible answer. Sorry. Tell me about the reception of the film. You mentioned that before. The affection for the film has grown. I think that the flaws in the filmmaking, the seams were pretty obvious, you know, when the picture was made. There's two musical interludes, you know, there's two montages. That's probably one montage too many. If you have to lean on a montage, boy, that's tough. And so that was that was like the storytelling on our part was a little sloppy. The script, and again, you know, you don't know what you don't know. We never made a feature, never, any of us. So, you know, the fact that the script structure probably could have been, would have been different. There are no regrets because the picture stands up. It's a very interesting kind of product of its time. And I still think it works, you know, today. It's an interesting movie and a fun movie. But for whatever reason, it didn't take off in the way that they hoped it would. And I don't know if it wanted to have a slower rollout. I just don't know. Some of the critics were like lukewarm on it. Yeah, this is kind of funny and this is kind of interesting. But what's it really saying? What's it really about? And I think in time, over time now, as we're talking about it, I think everyone can say what they what they think it's about. It's really open for interpretation. And that's a a good thing and not a flaw to the movie. It really has been embraced. I think it's a liberal movie, but I have conservative, not too many conservative friends, but I know conservative folks who say like, oh, you know, it's totally anti-liberal. They all fucking die and deserve to die. And the one who's, you know, is left standing is Rush Limbaugh. Aren't you saying that the, you know, the power is in the, is in the hands of the media and, and, you know, that, that if you're too extreme in either end, you're going to get it in the neck. And that's kind of the message, I think, you know, certainly Stacy and I would said that we were liberal progressive people. Um, Dan Rosen certainly was, you know, but he also more than any of us saw the absurdity in some of the extreme views on the right and the left. And so he was able to kind of skewer the extreme folks. And we were able to put some fun characters up there and, and really try to make people laugh. You know, the picture we saw it as a straight up comedy that had some, some intelligence behind it, you know. But again, we were moving so fast on such a low budget, you know, that mistakes like the painting mistake, which is clearly like we never even thought about it, got made. 30 years of hindsight is a lot of time to think about a movie that was made, you know, in a couple of months, really. There are theatrical versions of it. People have talked about doing a musical of it. People have, have made plays of it. I have nothing to do with them and haven't seen them, but I know that once in a while it shows up because it's basically five people sitting around a table, you know, and uh, the movie itself was shot 
all on one location except for one or two days when we went outside, you know, and so it's very, very contained. And um, the poster of the movie, this is this may be one of the reasons it didn't succeed or, or did succeed to the degree it did, did, but, you know, Jim Carrey was at his absolute ultra fame at that point. And um, the, the distributor put a, a guy in the foreground dead on the table in front of us. And I said, he's, well, he's not in the movie. That's not a character that even shows up in the movie. And, and the distributor was like, yeah, but maybe people will think Jim Carrey is in it. And so, you know, the same folks that were kind enough to buy it and put all that music in were the folks who were responsible for trying to figure out how to get an audience in front of it. And they marketed it in a way that I, I don't think really keyed into the, the power of the movie. But maybe they were right in trying to go for a big, broad comedy audience and and not a more specific, nuanced audience. I don't know. Anyway, that happened. The team that produced it and the company that produced it, they called themselves The Vault. I'm not sure why. Um, I, maybe they thought they'd get buried in The Vault. I think they only made one more movie after that. You know, Sony doesn't have a streaming service of their own. The hunger for the picture just may not be there until until people see this extraordinary podcast, and then they demand that it be made available on Blu-ray. I can certainly reach out to some folks I know at Sony and say, what do you guys think? It is the 30th anniversary this year. Is that right? Yeah, they should do something. I mean, it's got a hell of a cast. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. It's just amazing to list off the people that are in there. And be like, this is all one movie? All these people are in? <laughs> yeah, crazy. Charles Durkin, who was so fun. I mean, you know, just just person after person that we wheeled out. Yeah, it was great. Well, Jonathan, thank you so much for your time. This was great talking with you, as always. My pleasure. Thanks, everybody. Go check it out. Enjoy the movie. Dan Rosen, thank you so much for joining me today. I'm so excited to talk with you. You started a comedy club when you were 18 years old? Uh, technically, one week before I was 18. Holy cow. It, w it was one of those things I was too young to know that I couldn't do it. And it was basically just going in. I had made a little bit of a name of my summer, that summer uh, in Baltimore, and seeing at a comedy club called City Lights. You know, I saw it's pretty simple to do a comedy club. You bring in the comedians and you put them up and you do the show. So I went to a, a place that was uh, doing really bad business nearby. I said, hey, give me your third floor. I'll take the cover charge. You take the bar and I'll bring in comedians. And our first comedian was Paul Reiser, who had been in the movie Diner, which was a big hit in Baltimore, of course. It was filmed there. And he, you know, drew a lot of people. And uh, that gave us, got us enough money for the next weekend. And we had Bill Maher. This is all 1980, I want to say 83. Lasted about seven or eight years. That's amazing. So you both owned it, ran it, and then were a comedian yourself. Yeah, yeah. I was a stand-up as well for 13 years. Yeah. And then stopped when I had written the last, right when I was starting to think about 
all right, maybe I don't want to do stand up anymore and I want to be a, a film writer. And then I was on a not a great gig for two weeks in Reno, Nevada. Had just found out the day before that my girlfriend left me for my best friend back home. And I was supposed to meet her in Lake Tahoe while I was working in Reno. So I didn't want to leave my room anyway. And I thought, all right, I'm just not going to leave my room until I write 10 pages a day. There was a book. I don't know if I was using it or not. A book called Vicky King, How to Write a Movie in 21 Days. I don't know if you ever heard of that book. And I don't even know if I was doing it. But I was trying, my goal was I'm going to write 10 pages a day. I'm going to be finished in nine days. And that's what I did. And that was the last supper. That first script was pretty close to what became the shooting script. Although the, there were some changes though. If my math is correct, that was probably around 92, 93 when you wrote that? It was a 93, spring of 93. Can you tell me your version of how you ended up getting this thing made? So spring of 93, I write this script. Again, I might have seasons off a little bit. And I had read the whole movie took place in one room in the dining room. And I wrote it that way, specifically thinking, okay, I can either make this as a movie, like a cheap movie, or I could make this as a play. And I got, so I was a stand-up comic. I have a lot of friends who were stand-up comics. And I put a group of comics together to do a table read. In that table read was Bob Odenkirk. Uh, who was, you know, nobody back then, Janine Garofalo, Sarah Silverman, my friend Warren Hutcherson, who ended up having a small part in the movie, David Cross. And that was before Odenkirk and Cross. That was way before they did their show together. And I had a comedy improv show at the time called The Dysfunctional Show. And all these guys, which was kind of like a improv Jerry Springer show. And all these guys were in that show or had been in it. So that was pretty much... There were some other people, I'm, I'm forgetting who else was in that cast. It, I just invited everyone I know. It was, at, it was Back then, it was called the Richard Pryor Theater. I don't think it's there anymore in Hollywood. And I think I rented it for 100 bucks, which is a lot of money to me back then. And um, and then one guy came who was a... My father said, oh, you should invite my friend's son, Larry Weinberg, who wants to be a movie producer. And then Larry came and said, oh my God, this is really good. I have some notes, but, you know, I'd like to try and make this or whatever. So he gave me some notes. I didn't think the notes were very good. And then nothing really happened. And then a couple months during that summer, Janine Garofalo, people forget, Janine Garofalo was on the cusp of being America's sweetheart. She was, she could have been the next Sandy Bullock. She had been in, I'm trying to say, of Reality Bites. And then she followed that up with a great movie, The Truth About Cats and Dogs. And... We were, we were friends and we were talking once and she was saying how she's getting all these scripts and they're all horrible. And she goes, what, whatever happened to that reading that we did? And I said, oh, this producer's involved, gave me some notes. I'm still figuring out or whatever. And she goes, cause I would love to do that. I, that's the kind of film I want to do. And I go, really? And she goes, yeah. And she, so then I went back cause she wasn't like famous when she was in the reading, but like a couple months later she was. So I go back to Larry and I said, Hey, Janine wants to be in this. And by the way, it was the part of Jude, played by Cameron Diaz, ultimately. And Larry said, oh, God, well, that changes some things a little bit. Did you make the changes to the script? And I, I paused for a second. I'm like, yeah, 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 yeah. I made all your changes. I didn't, I didn't do any of them. And then I handed the script back to him. And he read it and wrote me back or called me back and goes, oh, my God, my changes really work. The script reads so much better now. And that was because, you know, he saw... 
Janine in the park, probably. So it's not quite as idiotic as maybe I made it up to be, but but I didn't make any changes. So now Janine's going to be in it, and then I I don't know their complete end of it, but he got this guy involved named Matt Cooper, whose family had a lot of money somewhere, and they started putting things together, and they um, started sending it out to some directors. Guy, there was a guy named Michael Addis, who I'm still friends with to this day. Stacy, of course. There was one other person. And then to their credit, I met with each of them to discuss like the film or whatever. And we all decided on Stacy. Then at some point, the cast just started coming in. And, and I realized Courtney Vance was the first actor I met with. He said to me like, oh, my God, you know, I love your script. And I go, what, what do you like so much? Because it's my first script. Like, what do you like so much about it? And he just flips through the script and goes, look at all this dialogue. He goes, this is every any actor's dream. He goes, any actor would love this script. And then I realized, oh, af- of course, actors like to act. Actors like to talk, whatever. And this was him coming off of um, John Lagar's uh, Six Degrees of Separation. So that was like the biggest compliment ever. So I think he signed on board. And then at some point, Janine got Saranet Live and couldn't do it and wasn't available. And Stacy's lawyer, Patty, I forget her last name. I think it was Patty. She represented young Cameron Diaz, who had just been in The Mask. And they'd given the script to her. She liked it. We did a reading for her. She came to the reading and really, she didn't read. She watched and really liked it and said she wanted to do it. And then at that point, I think for budgetary reasons, we had six roommates. David Cross was the sixth one playing a character named Daniel. They, I don't know if you noticed, they're all names from the Bible. And Daniel was the part I wrote for myself, of course, being Daniel. And David was great. And I had to call him and tell I couldn't get him on the phone and left a message saying, sorry, the director cut, cut you out down to five roommates. And he has never spoken to me since. Oh, ouch. 1993. As if, by the way, as if the writer has anything to do. And then I found out years later, a friend of mine was dating him and she said, I told her that story. She's like, oh, let's let's hang out with David or whatever. And I go, I don't think he likes me. And I was friends with him. And and I said, no, are you kidding me? That's 10 years ago. He or whatever. He knows he makes movies. He knows that that's not that's not your decision. And she called me the next day. She goes, oh, he really is still mad at you about that. Again, like I had anything to do with it. I mean, it all got made. So I wrote it spring of 93. We were shooting like fall of 94. So that was, I got very spoiled. That was really fast. And then we made it. There was a very mysterious fire. We got to do a little bit of reshoots. Then we had a screening at Paramount. Again, I want to say that was the summer. And I thought that was a little premature. They sold the film. This was like a 94, 95 before like Sundance was obviously like very prestigious, but they had not had those like movie deals like you hear about now. And I really think if we would have waited, certainly if we would have waited, we screened at the Toronto Film Festival first, then we did London, then we did Sundance. And I think we're one of the only films to ever do Toronto and Sundance because they don't they don't allow that anymore. I think we would have probably sold and had a bigger profile. So you said that the script that you wrote was very close to what we end up seeing. Yes. Do you remember any of the the differences between the two? Well, the big one was the roommates. We opened up the script a little bit. Actually, the original idea was that they, I never finished that version of it. The original idea was that they, they, 
they would kill the person and then they would eat them in the next meal. I was influenced by that movie Diva, but there was another movie that was kind of like that. I forgot what it was that came out around the time, but I dismissed that pretty quick. But it was The Roommates and it was same beginning, same ending. Jenny Tyler was still in there. Actually, ironically, the person that wasn't in there was a character played by me, Deputy Harford. And I think that was because Stacy said, oh, you because Stacy at that point was coming to see and Jonathan and Jonathan was in it, this dysfunctional show. And she's like, oh, you're really funny. You need to be in the film. And so we wrote this part of the deputy who's kind of like the the backstory was he's kind of in love with Nora Dunn, the sheriff. And there was one version this was not in my original script. There was one version of the film that we actually filmed where the roommates are killed and then it's Deputy Harford that finds Jenny Tyler and they find her alive. And Stacy had me write that and but we never we film we did film it because I have these strange pictures with me and oh my god, I always forget her name. Who played Jenny Tyler? Elizabeth Moss. That was her Elizabeth Moss for a film. I have her like on my shoulder. Like I, I saved her from like a, she was tied up in a shack or something like that. And there was also a scene where we walk in and we see all the roommates dead in the house, but we, we ended up not using any of that. So we pretty much stuck to the original script. Now, if the roommates are dead, who paints the picture of them with Ron Perlman walking away? I don't know. Cause that wasn't in my script. Yeah. I think that's just supposed to be like, I don't think anyone was supposed to have painted that. The use of the tomatoes is fantastic. Everyone, everyone talks about the oh the tomatoes it's a metaphor because they're they're blood red or whatever. It literally was just because I have this weird thing where I love comet ketchup, I love tomato sauce, I don't like tomatoes, and I'm 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 sure when I was writing it, I probably ordered a club sandwich that came with a tomato, and I'm like oh god I hate fucking tomato, and then I put it in the script. This being your first movie that you were able to make, were you ultimately satisfied with what ended up happening with it? I thought Sony made a big mistake. They they released it like in the spring of 96. There was like a big presidential election going on and they, they definitely shied away. It was so crazy. The reason people loved it was because of the politics of it. And you could tell right away Sony was completely scared of the politics of it, even though they bought it. And... You know, I had this suggestion. I was like, oh, my God, we need to do like a fundraiser for some bipartisan group or something for debates or some somehow tie it in. And they it just kind of like buried it. And it it didn't really it didn't really do anything in the States. It became a giant hit in France. So I was like the Jerry Lewis of independent screenwriters there for a while. It played in one theater for two years. And that's how I got to direct write and direct my next film because the producers of that made so much money off the last supper in France. They came to me and said, well, anything you want to do, we'll, we'll finance. Yeah. The one thing that I really admired about the last supper was just the level of talent in the cast, you know, and you even you're talking about the table read and just the level there, but then who actually gets cast is just fantastic. I'm a huge Ron Perlman fan. Of course, Bill Paxton, I mean, all the way down to like Mark Harmon and, and, Charles Durning was in the film. Yes. Oh, my God. It's just amazing. So Bill Paxson, the late, great Bill Paxson, sadly. So this is kind of crazy. I had just moved. I wasn't even really living in L.A. I was kind of commuting between New York and L.A. as a stand-up. I was working on an early Comedy Central show, writing for it. Somehow I'm at a Thanksgiving party, and Bill Paxton is there. Not famous Bill Paxton. This is like 1990. 
I want to say 90, it's got to be 91, 92, and maybe 90, actually. But we can figure this out because you, I'm going to mention a film and you can probably look it up. And uh, we start talking, like, recognize him from some film. Maybe it was Weird Science or something. And I said, hey, aren't you in that Predator sequel that came out today? It was Thanksgiving Day. And he goes, I am. He goes, man, I, man, I really want to see it, too, or whatever. I'm like, well... If you're as bored as I am here, because we didn't know anybody, why don't we go? Neither one of us drove either. Uh, why don't we take a taxi and go to it's playing at Westwood? And back then, Westwood was not like a nice neighborhood. And he's like, really? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So we get in a taxi. We go and sit there next to Bill Paxton watching Predators. And he gets his, I don't even remember, he gets his head decapitated. And near the end of the screening or the film, People started noticing him um, and like, wait a minute. Hey, that's the guy that, you know. And so we get out of the movie theater and then I don't see him again for, for years. And then he was in a movie called One False Move. Do you ever see One False Move? Oh, yeah. That was huge in the indie scene. Yeah. Right. He plays a guy named, named Wes, a sheriff named Wes. So I write the script. When I wrote that, you know, you were talking about a change of script earlier. The original script, the, the sheriff is a guy and his name is Wes, Wes Stanley, completely based on that sheriff because I'd love that character and I wanted to see another movie with him. So I wrote him into my script. Then by some miracle, Bill Paxton ends up in The Last Supper and he's perfect as that because he was shooting uh, Apollo 13 at the time. So he had the, you know, the crew cut thing and he comes up to me and he says, you know, I'm introduced to the writer. He doesn't remember that this whole Thanksgiving thing. He goes, hey, man, before anything, I got to ask you a question. I read the whole script. And by the way, this by this time, th the sheriff is a woman played by Nora. And he goes, I read the script. The sheriff was the sheriff supposed to be a man. And I go, yeah. And he goes, it's me, right? It's me. It's Wes. And I go, yes, it is. And then I told him, like, you know, we we're in this thing together. And he's a great guy. He, it's so sad. He, they were doing like a 20th anniversary screening of The Last Supper at the Austin Film Festival. And it was in November. No, it was at the end of October. And he was going to come. And then I got an email like the night before Dan, man, so sorry, buddy. Can't make it. But, and we had a mutual friend, my friend Kevin Ruff, who lived in Ohio, who lived next door to Bill. And he goes, hey, but man, when you come back to LA, let's, let's all get together. And then he passed away like a month later. But he was a great guy. Oh, and then I remember once I ran into Courtney Vance in line getting into Dodger Stadium. And he was there with his kids and Angela Bassett. And Courtney and Angela asked if they could butt in line. And I'm like, you're Angela Bassett? Why are you in there a VIP somewhere you could go? But the greatest story, and I hope I get this right, is the Ron Perlman story. This is crazy. It's nine, It's 2001 in Prague. It's like four in the morning. I am in, I don't know if you've ever been to Prague, but I'm in like this. Uh, a lot of the nightclubs are like in the basement because the city's so old, like the street just been built on top of things. So it's like four flights down. So I'm in this weird cavernous like bar, like a cake. I walk out of the bathroom and I bump into a guy a big guy who's wearing, I just remember it's an FBI hat on it. And I say, excuse me. He says, excuse me in English, which is a little strange for Prague at that time. I look up, it's Ron Perlman. 
unbeknownst to me, he was there shooting Blade 2. We've run into each other. Ron's drunk. He looks at me and he goes, don't fucking say a word until I tell you to. I'm like, what? He like drags me, he's a big guy, drags me by the shoulder to this table. At the table is, I recognize it later, it's the cast of the Johnny Depp, Jack the Ripper movie from hell. I now forget, I should look at, I forget who all the actors were. I think Heather Graham was sitting at the table and some British actors. And I'm telling you this in real time as it happens. They Clearly Ron is sitting with these people and I quickly figure out he just left the table and quickly just came back with me, right? And so they're a little confused. And the, Ron, drunk again, points to this guy, British guy, and says, tell this guy what you just said to me. Oh, about the movie? Yes. Oh, uh, well, I was just telling Ron here that he happens to be the star of my favorite American film. It's a little independent film called The Last Supper. And Ron said, and then what did you say? Oh, well, I was asking Ron, I've always been confused about the ending of the movie. So I was asking Ron, um, I've always been curious about what the writer meant by the end of the movie. And Ron says, so then what did I tell you? Well, you told me you'd be right back with the answer. And Ron goes, here's the writer. And what Ron meant was, I'm going to go to the bathroom right now, take a piss, come back and tell you what I think. And he runs into me in the bathroom in Prague. At 3 a.m. in 2001. Ron Perlman, ladies and gentlemen. What a small world. And also just a little bit extra thing. So last year, these or actually a couple years ago during COVID, these two very talented writer people, uh, musical theater writer people, came to me, Jeremy and Jeff, and said they, they had the idea to do The Last Supper as a musical. Now, I had held on to the playwrights for The Last Supper all this time. And I don't know if you know this, but it's been done as a play around the world. It was in Buenos Aires. It won Best New Play at the Marta Plata Play Festival. It's played in the Netherlands. It's played a couple times in Australia. There were a couple attempts at getting a, Lus a London West End production. And these guys came to me and said, we've always thought it should be a musical. And I always had that idea, too, that be a musical. And then they, they wrote up the music, and they did a great job. And then we optioned it to this big producer, and they paid for last summer. They did a two-week preview in New Jersey, like workshop production, and it was great. And they're currently now working on, I don't know if it's finding a theater or fundraising, whatever, but soon there will be the Last Supper musical. And it's pretty freaking great. Like I'm, It's hard when you're like the original author and you're seeing them taking your stuff, but they stick very close to what I already wrote, and they just wrote some great songs. Um, so I'll let you know when that happens. I'm sure it was very relevant when it came out and it feels even more relevant today. So hitting while the iron's hot with a musical, that's great. Yeah. And also what's fascinating to me is that every couple of years, people come and say, oh, we want to do the play version. I'm like, again, I wrote this during the Clinton years when things were not that bad and it's just gotten worse. And I would always go, oh, Obama won. No one's going to want to do this anymore. Kumbaya, America's going to be more united than ever before. And it just gets more and more divided. We did a production in New York, off, off, off Broadway production. And there was a review in Breitbart. Remember Breitbart? Oh, and yeah. Said they loved it. So that's the other crazy thing. There's, I've met all kinds of people. Conservatives love The Last Supper because they think they're the hero. And then liberals love it because they think they're the hero. And Breitbart wrote a, a review saying, Dan Rosen 
is the next great conservative genius because he's managed to convince this gay liberal theater company in New York to put on this play that they think makes fun of conservatives, but really makes fun of them. So why Dead Man's Curve? Heard that that was actually part of your stand-up act? Yeah, it's part of my stand-up act. And sidebar, there was a film that came out around the same time called Dead Man on Campus. And same premise, but they did it more of a slapstick version. And I had done that bit on MTV. And it was a staple part of my act about, oh, your roommate kills himself, you get a 4.0. It's like giving you a license to kill. Jokes follow after that. I was in a meeting with a producer who told me, again, this is hearsay, but she said, oh, I met with the people that wrote Dead Men on Campus. They came up with the idea in a very interesting way. And I'm like, oh, what was that? And she didn't know I had written Dead Man's Curve. She said, oh, they saw a comedian on MTV doing a joke about it. And that's where they got the idea. So from that, yeah, not great. But then that film, so we were kind of a big deal at Sundance. We were like on the cover of Variety. And unfortunately, we had a bunch of infighting between our French producers because a couple of them own the foreign rights, some of them the domestic rights. And there's just a lot of shady dealings going back and forth. So we ended up with Trimark. And then Trimark was like, oh, we're going to be this big thing. And they had bought like, they bought Billy's Hollywood Screen Kiss and this other, I think they bought the film Cube, that Sundance. And they were like, oh my God, this is good. We're going to do great. And then we did a test screening, these test screenings that showed if, you know, if they put 15 million into marketing, the movie's going to do the same as that movie Wild Things. So we're going to make like $70 million. That would make it like one of the most successful independent films of all time. And then Trimark just went belly up, basically. They sold it to Blockbuster. And we were Blockbuster's first straight-to-DVD like premiere, they called it. I got to be, he's passed away now, this guy, Dean Wilson, who owned Blockbuster. was very nice and friendly. And he called me after three weeks and he goes, we've made $17 million renting your film. And he goes, it's renting like a film that would have made $77 million. And then when I went to meet with Dean and have lunch with him, and I was working on another film that I was in development in New Line with a guy named Lloyd Segan, another guy that passed away, unfortunately, named Chris Brinker. Just a little film, little film history for you. And we were meeting, and also Adam Fogelson, who's now head of Lionsgate, was head of Styx, and he loved the movie. He was doing promotions for it. He was really trying to get Trimark to, like, you know, you got to release this film and you have a deal with Paramount or whatever. And we were trying to make that happen. Ultimately, it didn't happen only because USA Television would not push back the premiere date. They were premiering it. I forget when over the summer. And we were trying to get them. If they could push it back by three months. We get a theatrical release. They refused to do it. And I got on the phone with the head of USA and everything. Like I was very vocal about it. But while we we're having lunch with Dean, I said to Dean, I said, hey, I'm going to a screening of a friend's movie. Would you like to come? And he goes, oh my God, yeah. And Dean was so, you know, was very wealthy guy or whatever, but never got to go to Hollywood things or whatever. So I took him to a film, which he saw and liked and ultimately put money behind. And that film was The Boondock Saints. And that's where Boondock Saints got their distribution. They got bought that night. Or they, he saw it that night and then made the deal soon after. And it was interesting because he even said, the Boondock Saints to him was very reminiscent of The Last Supper because think about it, people killing bad people trying to make the world a better place kind of thing. Soon after I got a 
Well, a couple things happened. Here, here's a funny story that I've never told anybody. I went to Sundance without an agent. I had a manager. So it was pretty exciting. You go to Sundance, you have a movie that does well, and you don't have an agent, you get all these free lunches and dinners and people taking you out or whatever. And in fact, one of them, my agent, I did have an agent called the Gersh Agency. And the Gersh Agency, my agent had moved to New York. So I was kind of picked up grudgingly by someone else. And I had told them I was going to go make this movie in Baltimore, Dead Man's Curves. And they were like, I don't know why you're doing this. It's, it's, I don't think it's going to do anything. And I'm like, all right, well, I'm going to do it. And then six, seven months later, we premiered the Sundance Film Festival. And the Gersh Agency called my manager and they say, hey, we want to meet with, want to meet with Dan to talk about representing him. She didn't tell him, well, actually, you currently do represent. So we sat across to them and heard their pitch. And then my manager said, do you guys realize Dan is your client already? And so that was very embarrassing to them, but they deserved it. But then, so a couple months later, not a couple months later, very soon after, this is 1998, I was in, I think it was 98, I might get the year wrong. I met with all these different agencies, and one of them was ICN. And there was a guy named Nick, I want to say Nick Stein, who I think has gone on to like produce Academy Award winning films. He was super smart, and I really wanted to side with him. And his big thing was, the next big thing is going to be scary movies for like the preteen and his big idea was we want to go get the goosebumps franchise for you and you're going to write the movies and direct them and stuff like that i'm like that sounds great and then my my manager's like well i already set up all these meetings with ca and all these other agencies and you gotta you can't pick anyone because you'll make me look bad which is not the way managers should work but i I was too young to know better and i was just like all right well i'll wait so meanwhile, literally the next day, I go to London to meet with the people that bought the film for London, a guy named Hamish McAlpine, great guy. And while I'm there, I'm in a bookstore and I see a book that had just come out like that week, not picked, no one knew about it, hadn't been picked up for film rights or whatever. And it was a little book called Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone. And I read the back of it and I remember going back to my hotel and calling Julie, my manager. And I said, hey, Julie, I think this is what ICM was talking about. And I read her the back and she says to me, Dan, nobody wants to see a movie about a boy wizard. So I let it go. Did it, anything ever happen to that book? I seem to remember a story about it on NPR back in the 90s. And that's about it. Yeah. It never became a movie or anything? No, not that I'm aware of. So I'm not bitter at all. Yeah. No, I totally understand. Yeah, so I did, though, get a two-picture deal from New Line out of it. But then all of a sudden, it's funny. I made, like, two movies in, like, three years without any studio or Hollywood help or anything. And then all of a sudden, I'm in Hollywood, and I get this two-picture deal, and then I don't make another movie for 10 years. You just get stuck in this development hell where you're spending a year or two working on something, and then it doesn't get greenlit, or drama happens. I had a lot of drama on those some of those projects. And then, like, 10 years later... I end up making this film Freeloaders, and then that just become the that became the biggest nightmare ever. That's a love story. That's a whole other podcast. So, what have you been up to lately? I worked on a television show for Byron Allen called First Family. It was kind of a kids sitcom with my friend Chris Turner Towner. That was really fun. And then, you know, occasionally sell a script here and there. And then lately, I've been doing two main things. I now have a a writing partner named Tess Garrison. You might know her name. She writes the mystery novels that Rizzoli and Isles are based on. 
Oh, okay. Yeah. I love that show. So we sold a series to Lifetime about a year ago that we got paid, but it didn't go forward. And now we're we're working on a pitch for another show that seems very promising. And then the last five, almost five years, I've been a professor of dramatic writing at the Savannah College of Art and Design here in Atlanta and absolutely love it. I've just been working on screenplays. I just recently won uh, a fellowship. I just got back from Rome. I won the fellowship to the American Academy in Rome for a proposal to write a screenplay about, I don't know if you know who Brunelleschi is, but famous architect and a famous rivalry that led to the Renaissance. So that's, I'm currently working on that. That's like my Merchant Ivory script that it's the only, only idea I've ever had where I'm like, oh, you could, if you, if everything went right, you'd get nominated for best screenplay. You know, it's about art and artists set in Renaissance times, like it's either Academy Award winning movie or it doesn't get made. It's one or the other. Thank you so much, Mr. Rosen. This has been so good talking with you. Oh, you're welcome. This has been great. back and we are talking about the last supper and we mentioned a few films that this movie reminds us of up front but rob i know you that you've made it this far in the episode without talking about louis bunuel so that's got to change <laughs> that's right because it's such a cliche with me but you know as i was re-watching it i was thinking about how dinner party films because there's a lot of either it's just a one set kind of play or it's a movie that it's set around people getting together to have dinner. And then that becomes sort of, you know, comedy bears or, you know, some sort of satire. It's all sort of centered around this kind of ritual of getting together and having dinner. And, and I was thinking about it, how it was used in reference to at least, you know, two of my favorite Bunuel films, Exterminating Angel and Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, both have dinner party setups. And then I was also thinking of another filmmaker, also made movies in France, Francis Barber, who seems to be more well-known for his movies being remade in the United States than the actual originals over here in the U.S. I don't know why that is, because I think the originals are actually quite good. But if you're not familiar with him, I mean, go look at his filmography. There's probably about a dozen movies that he's either written and directed or written that became remade in the United States as comedies. And his movie, The Dinner Game, which actually played at the main when I worked there in late 90s, was remade into Dinner for Schmucks. So that's a whole thing about this guy who's a businessman and him and his friends get together to have these dinners in which they try to find like the most ridiculous person that they can find to invite them and kind of they humiliate them because they're weirdos. And it becomes this, you know, learning moral lesson for the uh, the people who judge others. So I, I really liked the dinner game. I thought the dinner game was really good. I did not see dinner for schmucks because I, I figured why bother? Cause I like the Verber original. Yeah. We talked a little bit about Verber. We talked about buddy, buddy actually, because he did the original film that buddy, buddy was based on. And yeah, to your point, 
He also wrote The Toy, which then became the Richard Pryor film. He wrote La Caja Fall, which was then remade with uh, Nathan Lane and, and Robin Williams in there, The Birdcage. Uh, even uh, that movie, The Three Fugitives from the late 80s, even Pure Luck. I mean, yeah, there are, it's amazing to look at this guy's filmography and be like, okay, in this year, he makes the French version, and then the next year, the American version comes out. <laughs> yeah. I'm just completely amazed by the fact of how many of his movies got remade in the United States. I can't think of another comedic filmmaker from a foreign country whose stuff has basically been redone in the United States that many times. Well, even A Pain in the Ass, which is what Buddy Buddy is based off of, that was remade twice, and I think he remade the second version and then it was even done in india as well so yeah he's a he's just basically a fountain of 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 talent over here and we can just cash in on that but i haven't seen dinner for schmucks or a dinner decon either i've been wanting to so with your recommendation i think i will definitely check that out it was fun you know i i really appreciate it and like i said it's it, it's kind of a moral, kind of like this. It's a parable film. It's, you know, it, it's got a, a good message in there in, in certain ways. But it's also interesting because I was reading the synopsis between the two and the differences that there's certain aspects in the French film about the character having a mistress and all of this stuff that it's like, well, we're not going to put that in the American movie. And, you know, there's certain there's certain kind of moralistic aspects that they've rewritten it you know, when it came to one of the, some of the characters. I'm sure you could do the same thing if you were to go through all of Barber's originals and put them up against the American remakes and look at, you know, what they decided to change because, well, that won't play in Omaha. When thinking about other dinner party or things like that in reference to um, comedy or satire, can you think of any any other ones offhand? Just this film had me thinking a little bit of this television movie, HBO movie Conspiracy with Kenneth Branagh and Stanley Tucci about the Lanzi conference, the um, conference where they decided to commit the Holocaust, basically. And it's, I think its script is taken pretty much directly from the, the real transcripts. And, you know, it's a bunch of people sitting around over a nice meal and brandy and cigars and just talking. And it's like the biggest crime in human history. You know? And I, I think like there's something about that juxtaposition between the civility of sitting around the dinner table or a table and having a discussion you know it's very civil we're just talking nothing bad can come out of this it's just a conversation and then i i think the flip side of that is oh like the, the worst things can come out of that so uh it might be an interesting film to pair with last supper even though it's i would say it's really not a funny movie i was talking about that whole thing about the tomatoes and the blood and and the infection and I forgot that right before Courtney B. Vance takes that shovel to Nordon's face, that he's eating a red popsicle. I'm wondering if that's just a regular popsicle or if that's made out of that tomato juice as well. <laughs> and I did notice too in that garden, I think it's Cameron Diaz is trying to plant flowers out there instead, like trying to reclaim the ground, but it's still just all tomatoes by the end of the film. And then even the poster for it is... I thought originally looking at it that it was a flaming heart, but it's actually a flaming tomato with basically a, a crown of thorns around the tomato. Yeah, it uses the Catholic imagery of the sacred heart that you'll see in some paintings of 
or imagery of Jesus. Yeah. It's funny. I told a friend of mine that I would be talking about this film and they had never seen it. And I mentioned that it was a dark comedy and right away they said, oh, is there cannibalism involved? And I, at first I was going to be like, no. And then I thought about it for a moment and I'm like, well, they do eat those tomatoes. It, it's kind of like second degree cannibalism. I don't know. Yeah. When they started planting people in the garden, I actually had a real quick vibe of motel hell and just thinking of all those people that are planted for the sausage that you just keep them, you know, you cut the vocal cords, you plant them in the ground, you put the bags over their heads and you play music to them. I almost thought that they were going to go to that extreme, especially because I don't know how quickly arsenic works. So when Charles Durning starts keeling over, I was like, oh, he's not dead. He's going to come back and scare the shit out of them and really make them rethink what they're doing. But no, they poison pretty effectively in this movie, other than, like I said, bringing an underage girl who is very uptight to dinner. She's not about to drink that poisoned wine. Arsenic poisoning affects at least 140 million people worldwide. This is due to contaminated drinking water. People in 50 countries are exposed to water that contains potentially dangerous levels of arsenic. You can show signs of arsenic poisoning within 30 minutes of high levels of exposure. I think arsenic, it usually takes a couple hours if you have a large amount of poison. I don't think it's quite as instantaneous, but it wouldn't be as much of a comedy if it was like a realistic depiction of arsenic poisoning. I think it's more just that, the, you know, it's like um, Chaplin in uh, Monsieur Verdoux or like something like that. Like it's more playful, the arsenic in old place, like you mentioned. And of course, you know, you can just use a little bit of arsenic in the tea to slowly poison your significant other over a protracted period of time if you really wanted to not that i recommend it the uh young poisoner's handbook over here the writer of this dan rosen i didn't realize that i had actually seen another one of his films he also wrote the film dead man's curve which is not the jan and dean story it is the whole idea of the i think it's an urban legend about if one of your housemates or roommates dies in college that they give you straight a's and it's I don't remember who all of this is in there, but I know for sure that Matthew Lillard is in there. Always a favorite. And I remember watching that because there were like two or three movies that were all based on that same urban legend. So watch that. There was even a Turkish film. I, I guess I'm obsessed with Turkish films tonight. No, that was Indian. I said earlier, but there was a Turkish film that does that exact same thing and has a cameo by Jean-Claude Van Damme, and I don't remember how that worked out. I'm, I'm tilting my head like, huh? Mike is mixing up the idea of the kids with dead roommate getting all A's with a movie where kids steal the answers to their college entrance exam. This is called The Exam from 2006 and does indeed feature a cameo from Jean-Claude Van Damme. When you started talking about dinner and dinner parties, of course, my mind immediately went to Another famous Last Supper, which is when Eddie is dead and in a coffin, basically as Rocky or, and Frankenfurter and all of them from Rocky Horror Picture Show are eating. And there's that great thing of uh, from Charles Gray as the narrator talking about the place of food and, and meals in popular culture. Food has always played a vital role in life's rituals, the breaking of bread the last meal of the condemned man, and now this meal. Calling this the Last Supper, having all of these biblical names in here, you know, showing WWJD, right? Like, 
would Jesus be poisoning these people? Well, maybe, maybe it's a little bit easier for him unless he had like, I think he, Jesus ended up killing somebody. I think when he was younger, right? He had somebody laughed at him and he ended up murdering them. So like he wasn't above doing that. I wasn't expecting a pull from the infancy gospels. Heresy, heresy. I only know of that because of the video. Isn't it the Danzig video where he talks about that? Oh, there's a good video of Danzig showing his book collection. He's like, this is my book collection. He's like showing all this. He goes, this has a thing about Jesus killing someone and all this. (laughs) Welcome to my book collection. It's one of the lost books of the Bible. Tells you a lot of stuff that they omitted from the Bible. Here we go. Infancy. It tells you about Jesus' childhood. Stuff that I guess most churches wouldn't want you to know about. Because it doesn't fit in with their ideology of Christ. And uh, let me see. There's one uh, passage in here where Jesus and a little kid are playing on the Sabbath. And Jesus is making these clay statues he's formed uh, come to life. And the child says, uh, it's a Sabbath, you shouldn't be do that. And blah, 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 blah. And so anyway, Jesus kills the kid. Another time when Lord Jesus was coming home in the evening with Joseph, he met a boy who ran so hard against him that he threw him down. To whom the Lord Jesus said, As thou hast thrown me down, so shalt thou fall, nor ever rise. And at that moment, the boy fell down and died. Do you ever see Glenn Danzig goes shopping and the person just sings out different items in a Glenn Danzig voice? Cantaloupe! <laughs> <laughs> That's good. It's pretty good. All right, guys, let's go ahead and take another break and play a preview for next week's show. Nice day we're having. Yes, there's a lovely rosy glow in the valley. Oil-rich Indians in space. I was just looking for you, Fred. Oil-rich Indians in space. The facts regarding the situation remain the same, state the authorities. Lionel, I said back up. The facts regarding the situation remain the same, state authorities. Don't you know what that means? I'm proud of you boys. I'm proud of the job that you're doing for your country. Go with the glow, boys. Go with the glow. Good gas. Oh, it's bird gas. It's the best. You make it yourself? No, it's come from birds. You know how to pucker up, don't you? Huh? You just put your lips together and whistle. Huh? How much is this going to cost? Yeah. Yeah. Just back it in. Yeah. Oh, how do you feel about that? I don't feel I'm the executive. Why did I go for a big trip? <laughs>
hate music. That's right. We'll be back next week with a look at a very strange film, Neil Young's Human Highway. Until then, I want to thank my co-hosts, Martin and Rob. So, Rob, what has been keeping you busy lately, sir? Um, in the home stretch, finishing off this master's degree, and then we'll figure out what we're going to do after that. But um, it's always nice to come on and get a chance to watch a couple of movies with you and do a couple of episodes. I think I've been in more episodes in the past six months than I have in the last few years. Paid off your debt to society, so I'm allowing you back on. But speaking of dinner parties, you and I need to get together and have dinner. So, you know, I'll make sure to bring two bottles. All right, sounds good. <laughs> and Martin, what's the latest with you, sir? I've been working on a few articles and things. I have a three-part series about the cinematic legacy of King Kong out on film89.uk. I'm on part two right now, but I think part three might be out by the time people listen to this, so they're welcome to check that out. Stacy Title, one of the last things she worked on was a King Kong television show, so weirdly there might be a, a connection that comes up in, in the third part. I also have a... Um, a series on the way that's about architecture and science fiction, but really it's more about economics and politics. So maybe people will find that interesting. And that should be out on thepinksmoke.com. I also appear on various podcasts, Wrong Reel, and a bunch of other places. And best way to find me is usually on Twitter at MovieKessler, where I post all my updates and stuff like that. There you go, trying to inject politics in the movies and stuff again. <laughs> Jeez. No it's funny to me it. when people are like, oh, like, get these politics out of my movies. I want them to be entertaining. And this has got very entertaining politics, so they can coexist. It's fine. Well, thank you so much, guys, for being on the show. Thanks, everybody, for listening. If you want to hear more of me shooting off my mouth, check out some of the other shows I work on. They are all available at weirdingwaymedia.com. Thanks especially to our Patreon community. If you want to join the community, visit patreon.com slash projectionbooth. Every donation we get helps the projection booth take over the world.
the ball the wall.